In our previous discussion, we established an important and comprehensive principle, and that is the second of the 13 principles of faith delineated by the Rambam, the idea of God's oneness, sometimes translated as God, God's unity. We translated it as God's singularity, meaning that there is nothing in reality that is existent besides for God. Moreover, that everything is under his complete control and purview. The natural extension of this principle or, or the questions I think that are raised by this principle, there's many questions, but I think uh, a central question is to try to probe and try to understand how does God's singularity, the idea that God has total control, he's the only one that makes the decisions, how does that coexist with the principle of free will or free choice, i.e. that we have a say, that humanity determines what happens, is it us, is it God? Now, I want to point out before we get started into the uh, discussion that there's many different ways to ask a lot of very similar questions. So I'm going to try to do this as high level as possible, to try to understand the fundamental interplay between God's control and man's control. And of course, there's man, there's multiple man, there's humanity in general, and there's the individual questions, meaning individual happenings that happen between individuals. There are the communal or the seismic changes that happen in the world. Also, are they affected by God? Are they affected by by man? I want to try to cover all of these questions, but the, the general principle is that we established last time that God has control, and we know one of the fundamental principles of Jewish faith is that we have a say in determining our choices, our destiny, our path in life. Are we righteous? Are we wicked? Is a decision that we make, and therefore it seems to be a little bit of a conflict, and I want to do is I want to clarify the conflict and maybe explain how we can reconcile those two. So I want to give context to the question before we really begin. We talk about free will or free choices as if it's entirely free, whereas when you look at the Jewish sources, it's quite clear that not all free will is free and there are certain parameters and limitations to free will. So for example, Ramchal, Rabbi Moshe Lusato, is one of the first places to go to to understand Jewish philosophy. And he talks about one limitation of free will, namely the fact that free will cannot destroy free will. More specifically, an individual's free will cannot destroy the arena, the theater, so to speak, of free will that God created. So we talked about in the past. God was desirous for his reasons of creating the world and specifically create a world that has humans who made choices and, so to speak, offload some of the choices to humanity. The world itself is, is God's desire. Our free will is subject to God's will, meaning subject to his desire and to his world. So suppose someone says, you know what? I want to destroy with my free will something. Well, then maybe they have, they have the flexibility to do that. After all, they could do good, they could do bad with their free will. But the bad that they cannot do is not to destroy the notion of free will in general, because that, of course, stems from a higher power, so to speak, that's from God, which is a long way of saying that humans 
or a human cannot utilize their free will to destroy the world. And when I read this in my grandfather's writings, when he quoted this, he added the following addendum. Nuclear war cannot happen. And by the way, this was written at the time when the fear of mutually assured destruction was at its peak can happen. Because what happens? You nuke me, I nuke you, we nuke each other, the whole world is destroyed. That is not within the realms of humans to make those choices. Free will is free for the most part, for almost everything you want to do or within certain boundaries. But one thing that it cannot do under any circumstances, humans cannot destroy the world because that would impinge upon God's will and humans' will cannot override God's will. So that's just, uh, uh, so again, trying to give some context to the question of free will and how it conflicts and how it relates or interrelates with God's singularity. It's important to stress at this point, free will is not totally free. It's not unlimited, number one. Number two, because free will is a creation of God, God could give and God could take away. And of course, the most famous example of this that we all know about is in the book of Exodus, when God tells Moses and then implements that he's going to tell Moses initially that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And eventually, even though Pharaoh wants to send the Jews away, God forces him to not send the Jews away, to harden his heart. He doesn't have free will. His free will is temporarily suspended. I may add, just uh, once we're on the subject, the Midrash in the book of Genesis, in a very difficult uh, chapter, I believe it's chapter 37 or 38, Judah, one of the sons of Jacob, he gets married and he has three sons and th- the t- oldest son marries Tamar and he dies and the next one mar- remarries Tamar in a leveret marriage in Yibum and then he dies as well and Judah's like, this woman's dangerous and he sends her away, I'll call you when I need you kind of thing and she gets dressed up as a uh, woman of ill repute, she meets him at the corner and he doesn't know who she is and the rest is history, they have a child or they have twins that go on to be the forebearers of Messiah. So to us, we look kind of, Judah doesn't come out of the story very well. Maybe no one does, right? She gets dressed up uh, as a woman of ill repute and goes to the corner, seduces her father-in-law, and he seems to be uh, fraternizing with the society that we wouldn't expect of the son of Jacob, and they have a child, and he almost executes her until she's like, well, no, it was you, you're the dad, and you didn't give me to your son, and therefore I justifiably was able to demand to be to have Yibam from you. A very long and difficult story. But of course, that's the origins of, of Messiah. That's the Messianic line. It comes from Judah through this union. But regardless, the Midrash says something fascinating. The Midrash says that there's an angel who oversees lust. After all, everything that we have, every emotion that we have, there's a certain – every influence that we have, there's it's it's all orchestrated by God. And there's an angel, so to speak, that's the angels in charge of lust. Says the Midrash, the angel came and took the, uh, the lever and turned it to a point where, in effect, Judah had no free will. So the Midrash says, it's a very fascinating idea. We think of Judah, well, what's he doing? Like, what, why is he giving into his temptations? The answer was, he had no option. This is almost like God saying, I'm tipping the scale here. I'm cranking up the volume. 
you cannot choose anymore over here. This is from a higher realm. This is from God's will. It's beyond the will of the individuals. So again, this is background to our discussion that free will exists within parameters. It's a desire of God that free will does exist and that can be taken away as well. And there are famous examples where it was taken away and free will itself is limited. Now I want to just, once we're on the subject, throw out an interesting philosophical dilemma. Let's say, God forbid, there is a homicide. So you have a perpetrator, the murderer, and you have the victim, the one who was killed. Did God want the victim to die or not? Is this an act of God or is this an act of free will or is it maybe both? God wanted, but the person also wanted. What a naughty philosophical dilemma. Does my free will extend to injuring or harming or even killing someone else? Is my free will maybe only limited to myself or can my free will actually bleed over, no pun intended, to someone else? What an interesting question. So uh, this is a very difficult question and I'm not going to give an authoritative answer, but I want to lay out some of the perspectives on this issue. And the place where this issue is raised is in chapter 37 of Genesis. That's the chapter in which Joseph is sold as a slave by his brothers. Another one of the difficult chapters in the Torah. So what happens? The brothers see Joseph come visit them, and they conspire to kill him. This guy, he's such a terrible guy. He's telling slander to our dad. We're going to kill him. We'll see what happens with his dreams. And then Reuven, Reuben intervenes. Oh, you're going to kill your brother? I have a better solution. Why don't we throw him into the pit? The pit bereft of water. That's what the verse tells us. And Rashi tells us, well, there was no water, but there were snakes and scorpions in that pit. This was a, a, a snake uh, a hive. That's where you're going to throw them into. So there's a very – if you just kind of zoom out a little bit, you have the brothers here. And our sages are unanimous. These brothers are all righteous. They're not homicidal maniacs. And when they said, we're going to kill Joseph, they had a very good reason why. They believed he was guilty of capital crime. And a variety of discussions as to why. The consensus opinion is because he's telling slander to Jacob. And Jacob's going to curse us. And therefore, Jacob's going to kill us. And therefore, Joseph wants to kill us. And what happens if someone wants to kill you? You kill them first. And therefore, Joseph is guilty of a capital crime, and that's why they wanted to kill him. So from the brother's perspective, you have a question. They believe that Joseph is guilty. Reuben says, eh, let's not kill him. Let's throw him into the pit. If he's guilty, if he deserves to be killed, they should kill him. Why are they giving in to Reuben? And Reuben's perspective is also perplexing. He's He seems to think that Joseph is not guilty of a capital crime. Joseph should not be killed. So he wants to save him. Well, how do you save him? You take him and throw him into a pit full of scorpions and snakes. That's not how you save someone. You say, you jump on him and say, you want to kill him? You got to kill me first. That's what we were taught, right? That's what you got to do. That's what you got to do. What does he do instead? Let's not kill him. Well, let's throw him into the pit and then he'll, he'll die in the snakes. What's going on? So the Arachim, one of the great commentators on the Torah, he explains what's happening here. He says that Reuben heard the argument of 
of the brothers. They believed he was a pursuer. He was guilty. They should kill him. But he's like, nah, I don't know if I don't, I don't know if it's true. I don't, I'm not convinced by the argument. But what's going to happen? You're going to execute him, and then we'll never know if he was guilty or not, because you, with your free will, can execute someone who's not guilty. Maybe he's not guilty. And you don't have a, a trial by combat here. You can't say, oh, we're going to kill you. And if you're dead, well, you wanted, God wanted you dead because that doesn't work. Maybe really you're supposed to be innocent and you're supposed to be unscathed and you really are supposed to be acquitted, but you were killed anyhow because someone else's free will can kill you. So what's his solution? Let's throw him into the pit full of snakes and, sc- and scorpions. You know who does not have free will? Snakes and scorpions. And therefore, if the snakes and scorpions kill you, then it's proof that God wanted you dead. But if we kill you, we'll never have an answer. It's no proof because you know what? A human with a human's free will can kill someone who is innocent, free of any crime, which is a astonishing perspective. How powerful free will is. Yes, it's not unlimited, but it's pretty vast that my free will is not just determining what happens to me. It's determining what happens to people around me and even injuring people. And even God forbid someone could kill someone who's not guilty. God wants them alive. And you know what? The other person says my free will can, so to speak, trump God's will in this instance. Of course, big picture, God wants that. God wants people to have free will to do good things and even terrible, heinous, horrible things. That's, of course, the will of God that people have free will. But how far does it extend? How far of a leash do we have? According to the Orachim, it's very vast. One person's free will can really affect another person, even a person's life. God does not want the person dead person is not guilty from God's standards, but a different person's free will will override that. Well, just to point out, there are opinions that disagree with that. So famously, the going to Vilna, he rejected this. He says, no, that's not, that can't be that someone who was killed, God wanted them alive. That, that, that is too much for free will to extend. But regardless, there is at least a legitimate opinion Again, I don't want to give a definitive stance on this. I'm not going to take a side in this argument. But at least there is, we know that there's a legitimate, reputable position in Jewish philosophy that holds that free will is so strong, is so vast, it can even encroach upon someone else's life. And I think that with what we've seen, said last time, God is totally in control. Everything that happens, everything is subject to God's purview, God's control. Is it God's control? Is it the control of man? And where do those two, those two points meet? And how does that work out? And how does that even make sense? Is the principle of God's oneness of God's sanity, is that true? Or is it not true? Or how do these two coexist? So that's the question. And I want to expand the scope of the question. You know, we believe that there is this world and then there is Olamaba, the next world. And of course, as you mentioned in the past, the 13 principles of faith, the Ram told us, that's the key to get a slot in Olamaba. If you want to get a slot in Olamaba, you have to b- believe in these 13 principles. So the Olamaba, the afterlife, as it's called, and it's not really an accurate term because it's not the afterlife. This is the pre-life. That's life. If you say afterlife, it seems like this is life and that's some sort of encore, some sort of after party. But regardless of the semantics, we'll call it afterlife just for simplicity's sake. Olamaba, the afterlife, you want to get a ticket in, you want to get a golden ticket, you want to stamp your ticket 
to eternity, you have to abide by these 13 principles. What's the difference between this world and the next world? They're both called world, olam, olam. One's olam azeh, one's olam abba. This world, next world. What's the difference? So there's a prayer that we say on Shabbos morning, every Shabbos morning, and that it kind of zones in at the fundamental, critical distinction between this world and next world. We read in the prayers, again, every Shabbos morning, before we say the Shema, There is no value like your value, Hashem our God, in this world. And there's nothing besides you, our King, in Olam Haba. This world is a world where we can say the following, there is no value like your value. The next world, it's a, different, it's a different class. There is nothing besides you. When you talk about values, you want to make a value hierarchy, right? There's something that you hold dear and something you hold even dearer. You like your car. It's a great car. It's very helpful for you in your life. It's amazing. You appreciate it. You value it. And then you have your child. You also value your child. But which one do you value more? You probably, hopefully, you value your child more than you value your car. This is valuable. That's valuable. But one's more valuable than the other. What do we say every Shabbos morning? There is no value like your value, Hashem or God, in this world. We're declaring that the highest value is God. There's other values, but they're lower values. Everything else is lower than God. So for example... Someone says, okay, you have a choice. Either I shoot you dead or you repudiate your belief in God. Bow down to the idol. Sub- subject yourself to a foreign God. What do you do? So we're told in Jewish halacha, this is a case, one of the three cardinal sins you got to give up your life for. Why? Isn't your life very important? Isn't your life valuable? Yes, your life is valuable, but you know what's even more valuable? God. And therefore, by you choosing to bow down to the idol in favor of your life, you're causing a problem. You're saying your life is more valuable than God. That conflicts with the prayer that we say. In effect, every Shabbos morning, we declare our willingness to die for God because we're declaring God's the highest value. But we say it's, it's in this world. In that world, there's only God. There's no other values. In effect... The fundamental difference between this world and the next world is that this world, there is a feasibility of having other values. And moreover, there's a feasibility of having other values that are even higher than God. And there's even the feasibility of someone saying that God is not a value at all in someone's priorities. That's free will. Free will is when people get to choose what's important, how important it is, how important everything is, and allocating the slots, so to speak, on the totem pole of values that they have in their life. If you think about it, what is a free will choice? A free will choice is only when the two options are things that are both desirous. If one is good and one is bad, it's not a choice. If one is good and the other one's also good, then you kind of have to choose which one's more good, which one's more better, which one's higher priority for you. So in effect, it's a very deep point here. 
free will choices are a reflection of a system of values. And we use that term in the literal sense. What is value and how much value it is? If we have a $5 bill and a $1 bill, which one is more valuable? The $5 bill, right? So everyone would choose the $5 bill over the one because it's more value. It's higher on the value. Five is better than one. Five is higher than one. And therefore the choice is easy, but the choice is only reflecting the pre-existing assortment or allotment of values. Our choices are a reflection of what we choose to make important. You could have someone who says, listen, my sports team is very valuable to me. And they're, they're willing to, uh, you know, watch their game, watch the television on Shabbos, because Shabbos is also a value, but it's a lower value, because I gotta watch the sports team. I gotta go to the game. And in fact, what they're saying is, their sports team is valuable, and even more valuable than Shabbos, in the midst of the Almighty gives us in the Ten Commandments. It's an amazing thing. They're declaring that that's what's important by their behavior. But this only exists in this world. Only in this world is it possible for someone to say, what's important? Is God important? Is it not important? If God is important, how important is it? Top 10 value, top one value. We declare, yeah, God, there's no value like God. But everyone else could choose what they want to declare. They could say, God's not on our list entirely. Not a value at all in my life. It's sad, it's tragic, but people could do that. Where could they do that? Exclusively in this world. The capacity, the capability of choosing what's important and how important it is, and that being up to man, is only in this world. However, in Olam Abba, there is no value besides God. Nothing else exists. There's nothing else that has any value. Not only is God the top value, God is the soul value. If this is all we knew, we would say, you know what? It seems like the principle of God's singularity that applies in Olam Abba. That applies in the next world. The principle of this world or the fundamental characteristic of this world is in conflict. These worlds are different. The world where God is the only thing that exists, that's the next world. The world where all these other values exist and we have to choose, that's this world. So it seems to be that the notion of principle number two is really only fulfilled naturally, so to speak, in Olam Abba. In this world, something other, some other existence. And I think that's that's what makes this world unique. The idea that God created this world, he's creating something that didn't exist prior. He's creating a reality in which God's singularity is not necessarily manifested because people have choices. And again, I'm saying people specifically because animals don't create the same problem. Because animals, they're all programmed. And the program, we would call them program instinct, animalisticness. And angels, well, they're also all programmed. They're programmed in the opposite direction. But they're all intellectual, all spiritual. And then you have the human, the anomaly, the half-animal, half-angel, ergo, someone who has free will, ergo, this world is unique, ergo, we can make choices. And again, this raises our problem. How does free will exist? But really, how does the world exist? How did God create a world in which 
his total dominion, his singularity, is not manifested. So, in effect, what we did, we expanded the question. The question of understanding God and free will is the same question as understanding God and this world. Given that this world has an entity that is free to some degree and with some limitations from God's direct oversight, we have to try to understand how this is consistent with God's singular and total control over all. Now, as an aside, last time we spoke about some of the commentaries and how they explained the verse of Hashem Echad. So one of the commentaries uh, was the Sifri that we quoted briefly. He says that Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem is our God, that's a reference to this world. Hashem Echad, God is one, that's a reference to the next world. This is his point. His point is that in this world there are things, or there is something that conflicts or that contradicts even with God's singularity, namely our free will. And therefore, God's singularity is really only fully manifested in the next world unless we choose to make our world a replica of the next world. And this is uh, a side point, but one of the fundamental principles of Jewish holiness is the idea of trying to make this world and next world as indistinguishable as possible. If this world and next world are indistinguishable, in effect, we have brought the idea of God's oneness into our world. We've created a holy world amidst the world bereft of holiness, which is the principle of Torah. Why we have Torah? Torah is from the heavenly world, brought it here. Why? To change this world to be a replica of the next world. We say in the, in the Kaddish, right, we want this world to be like the next world. We compare ourselves to angels throughout the prayers. Why? Angels from the spiritual world, us over here, and we're going to try to veer towards our angelic self to be able to, again, recreate the conditions of the spiritual world here. That's the focus of humanity. That That's the tension. That's the challenge. That's the conflict. Can we do it? Can we turn this world into a world where God's singularity is also manifested? Just I'll throw out here something cool. The Talmud says that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob tasted Olam Haba. They tasted Olam Haba. Very strange terminology. What it means is, in their world, in their sphere, they managed to do that. They created the conditions that were identical to the spiritual world. And therefore, they got a taste of it. Abraham was someone. Look at Abraham's story. What did Abraham do? He has a son, and he loves the son, and God says, go slaughter him. What does he do? He goes and he tries to slaughter them. What does that show us about his hierarchy? What's the only thing that matters in his life? Only God matters. In effect, Abraham is, is within his own self, his own little world, is creating the conditions of Olamaba. And therefore he got a taste of it. He lived in that, in that milieu. He was able to be a visitor, so to speak, in that world. Advanced stuff, but that's the idea here. So that's the subject in general that I wanted to talk about. Now, there are some uh, analogs to this question or to this to this concept. 
And these analogs are more related to the question of free will itself, the more free will oriented questions. But I think they're very much germane to our subject to understand the interplay between free will and God's dominion. So first one is the question of determinism. God knows what's going to happen ahead of time. And therefore, what people choose is also known to God. And therefore, how can we truly have freedom to choose if God knows the truth and that and God's knowledge is not going to change? It's a famous uh, dilemma that is dealt with uh, in Jewish sources and, of course, in other sources as well. But it's even though it's a free will-centric question, it does relate to the same properties, the idea of God's total knowledge and total dominion and total clarity, and yet the idea of free will is uncertainty, murkiness. That's analog number one that we're going to try to cover as well, even though, again, it's slightly off-topic. And a second question is the question of free will and divine destiny. Can we affect history when there seems to be a prescribed destiny? So, for example, we actually read it recently in the Haftorah, but many times the Torah talks about the idea of going back to Israel, which we already did, but Messiah, which we didn't do yet, rebuilding the third temple, right? Is that a product of God's choice that is God going to say this is going to happen and he'll force the issue so to speak brute force in in uh, engineering terms or is this our actions that are going to bring about the arrival of Messiah is this subject to will of God or subject to will of of man there seems to be sources that indicate that we choose if we repent or when we repent Messiah will come fantastic it's in our hands what if we don't repent Will Messiah come? Apparently, yes. So is it in our hands? Is it, is it in God's hands? Is there free will or is this divine destiny? Which one is it? Can it be both? So those are some of the questions that I wanted to uh, cover. Again, the general subject, the general concept is understanding the tension between God's singularity and our free will. So the best source on this issue is found in the Rambam's Laws of Repentance, Chapter 5. Everything that the Rambam would talk about, that we, we, when people say the Rambam, they don't attribute which one of his books, they're generally referring to Mishnah Torah, otherwise it's called as the Yad Chazaka, which is the complete retelling of oral Torah, in his words, not mine, and it's everything. So it includes in it, the, and everything's based upon laws. Even things that we wouldn't necessarily assume as to be laws, they're also called laws. So the laws of repentance is one of the subjects that he deals with. And chapter 5 is dedicated to the questions of, in subsequent chapters as well, it's dedicated to, to free will. So I want to go through what he says because he covers all three of our issues of, uh, of interest today. Now, of course, why is free will, why is that the subject matter of the laws of repentance? Because if someone repents, it means they sinned. If someone sinned, and they need to repent, well, obviously, that they had something to do with their sin. If there's no free will, if we're all automatons, if we're all Android programs to behave a certain way, then there's no, no, the whole notion of sin is predicated upon the notion of free will. And consequently, the notion of repentance is also predicated upon the notion of free will. So that one begins with a general introduction on the concept of free will. He begins, Rishus kol adam netunah. Everyone's given free reign, permission. If someone wants to veer towards the good path and to become righteous, 
he could do it. If someone wants to veer to the wicked path and become wicked, become a Russia, so too the, he has the ability in his hand. And he quotes verses in the Torah, as, uh, in the beginning of, uh, of Genesis, man is like one of us to know good and bad, and maybe he'll, 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 he'll eat from the, uh, from the tree of life. And the Raman points out that this is a unique phenomenon that pre- is present only by man. Because only man has that ability. There is no other species that has that same ability to have the knowledge of good and, 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 and bad and, and to be able to choose independently. Therefore, the continuation of the verse, maybe he'll extend his hand and so on. So this is a fundamental, unique characteristic of man. And that's his introduction. We can veer to good and we can veer to bad. And then he's going to dig into the meat and potatoes of the philosophical problems that this engenders. So he begins by saying, and I'm going to read it and with direct translation into English. Don't consider the possibility that the fools of the nations and the silly people of the Jews that they say that the Almighty decrees upon man at the beginning of their life to be righteous or to be wicked. The matter is not so. Every person, this is an astonishing line, every person, not every Jew, every person, can be as righteous as Moses, our teacher, or as wicked as Jeroboam, Jeroboam, the one who led the secession of the northern kingdom of Israel in the book of Kings. Or righteous, or wicked, or wise, or foolish, or merciful, or cruel, or generous, or stingy. Every one of the characteristics, it's all in the hands of man. No one will compel him. No one will decree upon them. No one will pull them to one of those two ways. He alone has the free will, free choice to veer to which path that he is desirous of. I want to point out just a little caveat. The Rama makes the astonishing statement that any person in the world can be as great as Moses. So anyone listening to this can be as great as Moses. And if you disagree with that, the Ram tells us you're wrong. And we're going to go with the Rama on that. Which is an astonishing statement. And it seems to be untrue. Torah tells us Moses is the greatest prophet that ever lived or will live. Moses is the humblest of all men. We can't be prophets. We can't be as great as Moses. So what does this mean? And the answer is that in absolute terms, we cannot be as great as Moses. But in relative terms, we can be as great as Moses. Meaning, Moses had the potential to become the greatest prophet that ever lived, and you know what? He maximizes his potential 100%. We have a potential to be good people, maybe even great people, great scholars. Each person has their own potential. And each one of us can be as great as Moses, because in the eyes of God, if someone does 100% of what they could have done, then they've done 100%. Can't ask any more than that. Moses did 100% of what he did, and in absolute terms, it dwarfs anything we could ever imagine to become. But if we do 100% of what we could become, well, then we're as great as Moses. And that's what it means to be every person in the world, Jew, non-Jew, doesn't matter. We all have a potential to have a spiritual achievements and spiritual stature and greatness. And we can be as great as Moses relative to what he was able to do. We could do the same and we can maximize our spiritual output 
And you know what? In God's eyes, we're as great as Moses. And he goes on to bring proofs. Uh, for example, brings a verse in uh, in Eicha, in Lamentations, from the mouth of upon high shall not uh, come out good or bad, meaning God will not determine if you'll be good or bad. And then he explains, ergo, as a result of us having free will, repentance makes sense. Why? Because the sinner sinned alone. They themselves caused that 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 misdeed, that misstep. And therefore, someone who did sin, they should cry and they should mourn and they should repent and try to atone for their sin because they did it to themselves. And he brings, again, more sources to that effect uh, from the book of Lamentations, the continuation of the verses, people sin for themselves and therefore they should repent. And he goes on to explain that, of course, without free will, there is no Torah nor mitzvahs, no reward nor punishment. And this matter is a major principle and a foundation, a pillar of Torah and mitzvahs. Quotes a verse in Deuteronomy. I have given before you the life and the good and the and the death and the bad. You have the ability to choose. You should choose life. Again, evidence in the Torah to the existence of free will. It brings another interesting verse from Deuteronomy chapter 5. Me yitain levavam zelahem. Who, this is God speaking, if only the people would fear God and would do his mitzvahs. How is God saying, oh, if only, how is God hoping for something? The answer is because he is giving us free will. It's, it's in our hands. It's not in his hands. Of course, this is the crux of our discussion. This problematic verse is like God's hoping. For us, the logic doesn't sit well. God to hope. He has all the power. But the answer is he has all the power, but he he withdrew, so to speak, gave some power to us, and therefore it's in our hands. It's not in his hands. We have the ability to make those choices. And the Ram continues to reinforce his point. If God would decree upon man to be righteous or wicked, or if there was something that was pulling him in a fundamental physiological way to a path among the paths, to a perspective among the perspectives, to a character amongst the characteristics, to action upon action. It seems like the Ram is breaking down free will into four different categories. Uh, path, like life path, perspective, character, and action. Uh, it seems like it'd be on the sending level, like a, a big picture to more, to the action, like life path versus action. But if there was something that was pulling us from externally, so to speak, or fundamentally towards one of these ways, like the fools believe, how would we, how would we have mitzvos? How could God command us to do mitzvos? Do this, don't do that. Improve your ways. Don't go in, don't go after the wicked ones. After all, if someone is drawn physiologically towards one of those two outcomes, it's not possible for them to not be drawn physiologically after that. It seems like they don't have a choice. So mitzvah, the whole idea of a mitzvah, commandment, anyone being coached or urged to do good, that presupposes that we have free will. If we don't have free will, says the Rambam, we don't have Torah because there cannot be Torah and there cannot be, of course, reward and punishment. If someone is righteous, they can't get reward. Well, they didn't have free will to do that. They didn't earn it. If someone is wicked, well, they can't be punished because they didn't make those choices. Obviously, there has to be free will. So that's the introduction.
And then I'm kind of going to start posing our questions one after another. You'll start softly and, and intensify. And don't wonder and don't ask and don't say, how could a person do everything that they want and have their actions in their hands? Could it, is it possible that something happens in the world that's not done through the will of God and his desire? After all, quotes another verse, everything that God wants in heavens and earth, he does. He's asking our question, how does free will and God's oversight, God's singularity, how do they coexist? And what's his answer? They coexist. Da, you should know. Everything is done the way God wants to be done. Still, 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 our actions are given to us. They do coexist. Okay, what does that mean? Ketzad, how does that mean? Just as the Creator is desirous that there should be fire and wind that go up and water and earth that go down and the orbits spin in their orbitary paths and all the creations of the world and all the laws of nature and the laws of physics and all the laws of biology are in place, just exactly the way God is desirous of that, God is desirous of people having free will, their big picture decisions, their actions are given to their hands without anyone pulling them or pushing them, rather they themselves, alone with their own knowledge that God gave them, they could do whatever they want. The Ram is linking, this is what we've established earlier, the Ram is linking the notion of creation of the world in general to the notion of free will. Like he says, fire, wind, uh, the galaxies, all that, they're all creations of God. You know what else is the creation of God? Free will. And these two, says the Ram, they're the same thing. And like we said earlier, the notion of creation, something which is not God, that in effect can only be if God withdraws himself and allows there to be something that's not him to exist. That's what we said earlier, that the idea of free will is the greatest manifestation of the whole question of how does the world exist, how does something besides God exist, and especially how does something that can conflict, so to speak, with the will of God, how is that allowed to exist? And this, in effect, is giving us an answer. Yes, God willed people to have their free will. Yes, he's acknowledging they're in conflict, but God's singularity is withdrawn to, to a certain degree because that was his desire to begin with. So in effect, God's desire is present entirely, but his desire is that some of the decisions are made by humanity. I want to pick up on another uh, nuance that the Ram says. We asked another question, free will versus destiny. The idea of, let's say, Messiah. Messiah comes. Is, is that our doing or is that God's doing? It seems like the Torah says it's going to happen. If it's going to happen, it's God's doing. Because if it's free will, it's up to us. And maybe we choose yes, maybe we choose no. So what does the Ramam tell us? The, the words are very sharp. Everything will be done as per the will of God. Still, our actions are in our hands. The Talmud tells us, and I think this might be a key to unlocking this, that Messiah will come in a generation that's either entirely righteous or a generation that's entirely wicked. Now, if you ask me, those 
Those are opposites, right? Those are the, the can't be more distant from each other. Entirely righteous, entirely wicked. Well, which one? Which one of our actions evoke Messiah? Is it entirely righteous? Should we all be trying to be entirely wicked? What does that mean? Maybe this, maybe this Ramam is the way to unlock that. Yes, God will determine when, how, and the like. However, we have a say too. And the destiny, so to speak, is fixed. Messiah will come. How will it come? Under what conditions? What will our role be once Messiah does come? Well, that's in our hands. The end, so to speak, is fixed. The means how to get there is up to us. The will of God is still going to be manifested, but our action is really going to determine what is the nature of, of this revelation. And this is, I'm getting a little bit out of my own um, um, jurisdiction, but I'll say the following because I believe it's true. And if you disagree with me, that's okay. The Torah tells us very clearly that the Jews will go back to Israel. They'll be kicked out. They'll come back. They'll be kicked out again. They'll come back again. And as an aside, I think it's a very powerful proof to the divinity of the Torah when the Torah makes such bold predictions of events that happened once or twice in history. They happened once because they happened only to one's nation. They happened twice because they happened twice to us. Only twice in history has a nation been kicked out of the land and come back and reestablished sovereignty. It happened once when the Jewish people were kicked out of the land by the Babylonians. They came back. And then they were kicked out again. And we've made our way back. And this is modern history. If I was talking to you 200 years ago, you may say, Rabbi, that sounds pretty outrageous. The Jews are all in Poland. They're in Russia. Some of the people moving to America. But one place they're not is in Israel. And now we know that they are there. In fact, that's where the majority of Jews are, are living now, more than, any other, more than any other country. And that was foretold in the Torah. Well, who brought us there? How do we go there? You can make an argument that if not for the Holocaust, the way things worked out in history would not have worked out. So does that mean that because of the Holocaust we got the land of Israel? I wouldn't say that. I would say the path that we chose determined the kind of deliverance that we got. Deliverance in the literal sense. We decided, so to speak, how we wanted to get there. Our choice, God's choice, both of them coalesced in history. Is it possible we could have gotten the land of Israel a different way? I definitely think that's true. But free will and God's will, they united in history. If we chose a different path, the result would have been the same, but it would have been very different. God's will and our will would have also united, but the result would have been very different or the path would have been very different. So I think this is opening up uh, a little bit of an understanding of how to reconcile these two. Yes, we have free will, and yes, that conflicts with God's free will or God's uh, singularity, so to speak, but it really doesn't because, A, he wants us to have it, and therefore it's under the rubric of his His will is that we have free will, and B, the end, what will happen is our choice, yes, but ultimately that's that's also the will of God as well. And then I think the Ram kind of intensifies uh, the subject a little bit. By talking about the free will uh, paradox, uh, again, these two seem to be mutually exclusive. 
So I want to read it to you. It's a very deep, deep point. I'll read it quickly because we don't have so much more time. But uh, you know where to look for it, and we're going to try to cover it uh, well, even though not well enough, maybe. Not well enough uh, as per deserving of such weighty subject matter. Perhaps you may say, says the Rambam, after all, the Holy One, blessed is he, he knows what will be before it happens. And therefore, he knows if someone ends up being a righteous person, someone lives a life, they end up being righteous, and they die a righteous person. Did God know that beginning, at the beginning? Yes. And if someone ends up being wicked, did God know that at the beginning? Yes. God's knowledge and God's and free will seem to be in, in, in direct conflict. How could it be that God does know perfectly, and yet we have free will? So he answers, I think, with a very deep point, but he begins with a preamble. And this is something that if you gain familiarity with Ramam's writings, it's very unusual for him to say this. Da, he starts off saying, no, you should know this thing. The answer to this question is broader than the land and deeper than the sea, and many important principles and tall mountains are contingent upon it. What an introduction. But you have to know this thing that I'm about to tell you. That's his preamble. We already explained in chapter 2 of the laws of the foundations of Torah that the Holy One Blessed is his knowledge is not external knowledge like people. Because people and their knowledge are external. They're different. They're two separate things. You, your knowledge are not one thing. There's you and then there's your knowledge. They're different. However, he, the Almighty, his existence and his knowledge are one. And a human cannot fully wrap their heads around this perfectly. And just as it's impossible for us to understand God's actual existence, quotes a verse in Exodus, God tells Moses, you can't see me, no man can see me and live. So too, a man cannot fully understand God's Knowledge, because after all, God's knowledge and God's existence are one. That's what he says. And then he ends off, and therefore, it's we don't have the strength or the power or the ability to know how God knows what he knows, but we know that he knows it, yet we still have free will. And God does not compel him, does not push him, does not pull him in any way, and he adds that this is not something we believe based upon Tradition or custom, it's something we could prove with absolute clarity, logically, there's no other way to, to understand this. So what's going on over here? It seems like a very terse formulation. God and his knowledge are one. What does that mean? I think a good, a good way to uh, explain this, you know, the very definition of the Jewish perspective of theology is that God exists outside of time and space. Hence, God can exist in the past, in the present, and in the future. So what does that mean? That means that simultaneously God exists now in the past and the future. We are limited to the confines of time. God is not limited by the confines of time. There's no rigid constraints that he suffers from that we do, meaning he doesn't suffer from the same rigid constraints that we do. Hence, God is static while we are dynamic. Our knowledge is cumulative. You don't know something, you come to class, you listen to the podcast, you know something that you didn't know prior. 
you accumulate through time. Yesterday you don't know, today you know. Tomorrow you know because yesterday you learned. And so on. And yesterday you learned, and tomorrow you learn more things. God's knowledge and God's wisdom is the same as his existence, not bound by time. So what the Ram is telling us is, our question is based upon not understanding this point. Our question is based upon a misattribution of God's knowledge. We attributed God's knowledge as being cumulative when really it's static. It's not dynamic, it's static. Only if we understand that God knows because God learned, only then can we ask the question, well, God already knows because God knew because God discovered what I, what I, what I did. Only then can we say, well, how, how can I do anything else? But if God's knowledge is static, he always knew because he exists outside of time and space. It's as logical, says the Rambam, for me to ask the following question. Yesterday, my child was faced with a question. Does he want this? Does he want that? I exist today, so I know what he chose. Does my knowledge today conflict with his decision yesterday? No, yesterday a choice. He made the choice. I just post choice. I know his choice. And therefore, I know his choice after the fact. But his choice at the time, he still had the choice. If God's knowledge is static, meaning it's not cumulative, it's not just within time, God's knowledge of our choices are almost post facto, so to speak. Of course, it's not post facto because God doesn't exist within time. But it means it's from a different realm. Once we establish the principle that God's knowledge is not based upon him learning something ahead of time, so to speak, then the question doesn't make any sense. Because God, now, Ram acknowledges, yes, we don't understand how God knows it. But God's knowledge does not conflict with our choice because God's knowledge is not within that same rigid construct of time that we're living through. We don't understand how God is outside of time and space. But that's a different question. And that's not, that's not our subject matter. Our free will is not influenced, is not encroached upon by God. It's ours. It's in our hands. He knows exactly what we're going to choose, but not in a way that is going to conflict with our free will choice. So to wrap up our subject, there are, there's a lot more to talk about. This is, uh, we're scratching the surface here on, on the question of free will, but I think it was important. We're going to talk about God's singularity, the fact that he has control over all. We have to acknowledge that free will is something which is, so to speak, distant from God because he is not manipulating it. He's not putting his quote proverbial thumb on the scale. And I don't want to give off the impression that we've covered the entire subject because free will and God's oversight is another wrinkle in this discussion, another element, another analog of this discussion. And there's an idea that we can influence how much free will plays a role in our life, how much does nature play a role in our life. Nature, of course, is the will of God, but it's the most common will of God. God is desirous that the water stays unsplit. But then he says, ah, I'm desirous now of the water splitting. Both of them are equally the reflection of the will of God. One's more common and one's a miracle because it's less common. How much of the other, so to speak, 
method of treatment do we want to have is also a question that's up to us. We can determine how much do we want God himself, so to speak, to oversee our actions and how much do we want it to be outsourced, so to speak, to nature, to the laws of nature, to the free will of others. There's a very important Mishnah that we read in Perkevos, chapter 3. If someone accepts upon himself the yoke of Torah, the other yokes, the yoke of the kingdom, the yoke of the way of the world, are removed from them, which is telling us that there is a certain elasticity in this question. How much is God directly determining what happens to me? How much is it nature? How much is it other people? It's dynamic. That could change based upon my behavior. But the bottom line that I wanted to cover, the question I wanted to answer is that singularity of God, everything that God wants to happen happens, yet we have free will. Those statements are both true because God's will is that we have that free will and therefore we still have free will. And yes, to a certain degree, it is divorced from God, but ultimately big picture, God's control is unlimited. It is ubiquitous. It is everywhere. But only in Olam Abba can it be manifested Completely, because only there in Olam Abba do we have the idea of God's singularity be manifested to all where there's no other value besides for God. I want to, next time, I want to talk about another, I would say, problem with the question, with the notion of this second principle, and that is the question of bad things happening to good people, known in... uh in uh, in scholastic uh, terms as theodicy, question of theodicy. If God is in control of all and God is good, how come we find in our world things that are bad that happen to good people, seems to be unfair, seems to be unjust, and if God has total control, he maybe, in our view, should do something else. That's a question that we'll cover next time. Reza Hashem.